This is the podcast for God's Honest Truth. These are stories that are told by members of First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Each time we get together, we have a theme, and the members of our church tell stories based around that theme. I hope you enjoy. Well, good evening. It's wonderful to see you all here tonight. Uh, I want to welcome you to our God's Honest Truth Storytelling Hour. Uh, we began this um, almost two years ago now, uh, where we bring people out once a quarter from our congregation and our community to tell stories, to tell their story about uh, life and what life's all about to them. And, uh, and it's been great because we've gotten to know each other really well. People have told us details about their lives we wouldn't have known otherwise, and that's the purpose of tonight is that we can get to know each other a little bit better. And uh, so I think that we have, we kind of have a, we have a lot of good, a, a lot of good storytellers in our community is, is what we've come to find. And so uh, tonight um, we're going to be doing our theme, which is making it out, rising above our circumstances. And I would like to invite our first storyteller up this evening. It is Kim Nowak. Would you welcome her to the stage? You made me memorize it. <laughs> Hi. So ironically, my story is about anxiety, and I'm really anxious right now, so yay. So it was a late October afternoon, um, and I had just loaded up a screaming one and three-year-old into the car. We were on my way to meet my husband so I could go get a sore ear checked out for a much-anticipated trip to Napa. We were going on the following day. Um, it all started with this ridiculous request that I had that my kids put their coats on, um, followed by an even more insane attempt to have kids who had just been asked to put coats on get into car seats. So anyone who's had young children know how this goes. As my children screamed in stereo in my small, small car all the way from Mount Prospect to Park Ridge, I felt like my heart was beating as fast as it, it had ever beaten. Um, my mouth was like cotton, and I could barely catch a breath. Uh, while I knew these as symptoms of anxiety that I had um, battled and hidden for most of my life, it occurred to me at that moment that if I didn't get my act together by the time I got to the doctor's office and they took my vitals, I would be found out, which was a pretty big fear of mine. So first lesson about anxiety, if you don't want it to come, it comes. So it did. Um, I had my first panic attack ever that October of 2011 in a doctor's office. I couldn't see. I had to be walked to the scale to get my weight, and as I had predicted, my blood pressure was through the roof. I got through that day, I got through my trip to Napa, probably by the power of lots of red wine, and when I returned, it was clear to me that my anxiety had reached a level and it was just not going down. I couldn't sleep at night, um, I had no appetite, which is very rare for me, anyone who knows me, and um, I didn't want to go anywhere where I felt anxious. Unfortunately, that was almost everywhere. I felt anxiety when I went to the library with my kids. I felt anxiety going to the children's museum, to my favorite stores. Everything I had enjoyed, I'd go and feel awful. The other option also was not a good option, though, which would be stuck in my house for the winter with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So I just kept going. Uh, regardless of how horrible I had slept the night before, or how anxious I felt that day, I never stopped. I just went and went. Every day really was full of fear and exhausting. So I quickly came to the conclusion that I needed to enlist professional help. I went to medical doctors, I went to naturopaths, I still don't really know what that is. Um, I went to a dietitian, I went to acupuncturists, you name it. Um, a few things were easy to figure out. I had a completely burnt out thyroid 
likely the result of training for a marathon when I was still sleeping four hours a week, four hours a night with a baby. Um, so I went on meds for that. The second thing I figured out was the uh, take when you're anxious Xanax prescription one doctor prescribed me was a bad solution for me because I was always anxious and um, I knew these medications were addictive and just not long-term solutions. So as it turned out, I was gonna have to figure the rest of this out in a therapist's office. I'd had anxiety really for all my life, I was 32 at this point, and somehow had never stepped foot into a therapist's office. And finding one felt like a really daunting task. I don't know if any of you have ever looked for one, but it cannot be fun. So I actually went through three before I found one that worked for me. Uh, the first one wanted to blame this whole debacle on my very functional childhood, which my parents can attest to. My childhood was fine. Uh, the second one actually fell asleep during a session. <laughs> I mean, right? Um, and the third one had just been divorced and thought maybe that was my ticket too. It, it was a disaster. Um, I was convinced though that there had to be better options, so I just kept looking. So I finally found Jason, uh, who treated anxiety with a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, and exposure therapy. The idea behind CBT is to help you reframe unhelpful thoughts into more helpful ones. So a thought of mine would be, um, I'll never not be anxious, and he helped me kind of reframe that to be, maybe I have a new normal, but I can live with anxiety. Most helpful for me, though, was the exposure therapy. The idea behind exposure therapy is to expose ourselves to the things that we're scared of gradually and repeatedly. Um, as you do repeated exposures to these feared stimuli, your brain starts to learn that anxiety itself really isn't all that scary. So with Jason's help, I created a hierarchy, um, a hierarchy of all the things that I feared. And every week, I would have homework assignments. They would range from watching YouTube videos of people taking their blood pressure. Those do exist. Um, actually going to Juul to take my blood pressure, and even going back to that waiting room of that doctor's office where I'd had my panic attack and just sitting there waiting for the anxiety to come down. At first, walking into Jewel with my two young kids um, to take my blood pressure seemed so ridiculous. And I realized as I did it over and over again, though, I became less and less scared of being scared. Additionally, as I faced all these triggers that I was so scared of, everything else became easier, too. I was getting my life back. I could do all the things I enjoyed doing with my kids again. So after literally a year of constant fear, I was really starting to see some light. So a couple years after all of this started, I was still going to my therapist. He kept trying to fire me, and I'm like, no, I think we should still keep seeing each other. So I kept going to him, and in one session, he said to me, um, have you thought about what you're going to do next? You seem like you're bored but busy. So that was a perfect description of where I was in my life. I was home with my two kids. I was working part-time from home and volunteering at the school a little bit. And I still had way too much idle time with my thoughts, which was just not good for me. So I told him that I felt stuck, that my youngest was a year away from kindergarten. What I really wanted to do was go back to school and get my master's in social work so that I could become a therapist who didn't fall asleep in sessions. But I had every excuse you can think of. I was old. Um, where would I find money? Where would I find time, et cetera? Um, but I, and, and I was also scared. Of course I was scared. I was scared that I would fail. I was scared I wouldn't be good enough. At this point though, I knew what I had to do when something scared me. I had to face it, um, so I did. Uh, with the endorsement of him and my husband and my family, I went back to school at 38 and got my master's in social work. And now I treat adults with anxiety and OCD and PTSD using exposure therapy and CBT. So just now, anxiety really is way more in the background than it's ever been in my whole life. Uh, but when it does come to the forefront, and it does every once in a while, unfortunately, I just do what I 
did, what I learned to do when it plagued me the most, which is to keep going in spite of it. And honestly, watching my patients who struggle more than I ever did face their biggest fears on a daily basis is just more motivation for me to keep living alongside my anxiety, too. And yeah, I like to think I did raise out of my circumstances of being ruled by anxiety and fear by just facing them. So that's it. Thank you. All right. So tonight, we do have a special night in the sense that for the first time ever, we actually have all women who are telling their stories this evening. That's the first time that we've uh, had that. So it's, uh, so it's, it's a different night. I do try usually to get a blending of men and women to come up here different ages, but I said, you know what? They're the ones who want to tell their story. They're going to tell their story, and that's the way it goes. So I'm actually really happy that... Um, that we have a group of all women, and you're gonna see that there's some cohesiveness to some of the things that they're talking about tonight. So our next storyteller is Dawn, and she's gonna come up and she's gonna tell us her story. Not my monkey, not my circus. Will you welcome her to the stage, please? Okay, so unlike my successor, I am full of anxiety right now. <laughs> and you guys gotta bear with me. So, the image of my life is that of a circus, but it's not one of which you would think about, like Barnum and Bailey Circus, Lions and Tigers and Bears, is actually that of which a circus where monkeys controlled it. To give you a good painted picture, we'll start with my childhood. My circus began January 12, 1968, the day I was born. From that day, Various monkeys ruled my life. It all started with low self-esteem, emotional, physical, mental abuse, sexual abuse, as well as addiction. To understand how all this started, we'll start with my childhood. My father was never around. My mother was a no-nonsense type of woman, then and now. She was very strict. She didn't give the typical type of love that you would think. She didn't give hugs. She didn't love, like, she wasn't cuddly. She wasn't soft. She wasn't nurturing. She was very hardcore. She gave you just what you needed, a roof over your head, clothes on your back, shoes over your, on your feet, food on the table. But it didn't stop there. She gave you what she thought you needed, not what you actually wanted. For example, if you didn't eat everything on your plate, you had to sit there until it was gone. It didn't matter if it was all day, you sat there until your food was gone. Wasn't good for us, but we had to eat it. Whether it was cold or not, you sat there, you ate it. Bear with me. Besides my mom, I had an older sister and brother. They tortured me. They thought I was a nerd. They threw bugs on me. Not just any typical bugs. Rats, mice, leopards, lizards, frogs, all sorts of bugs. And they thought it was funny but it wasn't funny to me. They had a very warped sense of humor. To this day, I'm definitely terrified of all types of bugs. I see one coming, I'm jumping out of my skin, running across the room, terrified of all bugs, just for that. Due to this trauma, 
I became very reclusive as a child. I didn't like people. I didn't have friends. I stayed to myself. I was very so, not, I'm not very social at all. I got teased a lot and got bullied quite often. It's very hard when you're a child and all you really want is just the love and tenderness of your mother and father, and you don't have that. So what happens is you just fall into this deep, deep, dark hole and looking for love in all the wrong places. And that's just what happened to me. And that's when the monkeys just began to control every aspect of my life. It just became a circus train of mass destruction. Rape, abuse, mental illness, drinking, becoming a sex slave, bankruptcy, homelessness, suicide attempts. I know this list is very overwhelming, so we'll just stick with the first one and focus on that one. Sexual abuse was an extreme constant in my life. It didn't matter where it was coming from, people I knew, family members, strangers, friends, you name it, it happened. I had my firstborn when I was 14 years old. I was a kid having a kid. I needed real support from adults. This was another monkey. I didn't get a lot of support. The adults in my life shunned me. The church shunned me. The church members shunned me. My pastor shunned me. I felt that God shunned me. I was just looking for answers that I couldn't find anywhere. The rejection of the church hurt it, as that was the church that I grew up in. And it hurt it worse because my grandmother was a mother of this church. I still was trying to seek answers. So I sought the pastor and I asked, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? He said, let's talk about it. Little did I know, he turned on me for his sinful, his sinful needs. Another example of adults shunning me, I was 17 and I went to court on a rape case. The judge threw the rape case out. The judge told me it was my fault that I got raped because I was too pretty. Case closed. From that day on, I felt that everything that happened to me was my fault because the judge told me it was my fault. So I felt that all of the relationships I had from that point on, it was all my doing. So I continuously felt into roles of being victimized, abused, due to, I didn't know any different, I didn't know any better, I didn't know how to stand up for myself. That monkey followed me everywhere since I was 17. I found myself in extreme hard situations. I didn't know how to get out of them. Another example, I was also gay, bisexual, whichever way you want to label it, in a Christian community. The church shunned on that. While the church shunned on that, I felt God turned his back on me. The church wasn't accepting of being gay in a black Christian community. So I went to a different church. The white Christian community shunned me. I said, okay, I'll go somewhere else. No matter which 
community of churches I tried to go to, none of them accepted me because I was gay. That gave me another sense of not belonging. I felt like I didn't need to be here, which started the suicide monkey all over again. Eventually, I started trying to take control of myself. No matter how much I did, those monkeys just continued to come. The more, the older I became, the chaos of my youth started to subside. And then there started to become bright spots in my life. I started to gain control over the monkeys that ruled my life. And rather than being in abusive relationships, I was now able to discern the difference between who loved me and the people who were just trying to use me. In fact, I found the love of my life. My wife is the most loving person I've ever been with. And she's helped me see all the weaknesses that those monkeys tried to ruin my life with. And I now realize without those monkeys, my heart would not be as big as it is now. I would not know how to care for others. I would not know how to love myself. I would not know how to love my children unconditionally. I would not know that it's okay to say no and mean it. I would not know how to do anything. I would not know how to stand up for myself. Those monkeys have allowed me to know that I am beautiful, I am strong, I am funny, I am intelligent. People love me and I love me. And most importantly, it's not my monkey and not my circus anymore. Takes a lot of courage to come up and say words like that, so thank you. You did a great job. Great job. Uh, after, I just want to mention in between, and we always do this afterwards, is that we will have a reception out in the Narthex afterwards where you can go out and you can talk to our storytellers tonight. I hope you will spend some time. Uh, we've reduced the, the number of storytellers down so that you have some time to talk to them out there. So please take the time afterwards to, to spend time speaking with them because I think they'd appreciate hearing from you. So our next story tonight comes from Benna, and she's going to be uh, telling her story, Not the Right Fit. Come on up, Benna. Welcome her to the stage, everybody. So I have a confession, which I told Alex about on Sundays when I first signed up for this. I thought it was March 6th. So um, surprise, I have some notes. Um, and then the second surprise was memorization, which makes sense for being a storytelling session. But the ironic part is today actually would have been my dad's 99th birthday. And so I think that's really cool. And I know he's here with me tonight. So good for that. So anyway, um, 2019 was probably one of the hardest years of my life. Um, I'd been in the same business, commercial real estate, for about 35 years. And uh, for the first time ever, I was let go. I was terminated twice last year. Um, this is something that was shocking to me. Um, my son and I watched Survivor, and it was like two major blindsides in one year. Uh, no no idea that it was coming at all. So I was told both cases I was not the right fit. Um, that's a term you'll hear a lot in corporate America, just in case you aren't in it. Um, and employee at will is a very heartless concept 
because you can be let go for any reason or no reason at all, unless you're union, which I was not. So um, there I was, dealing with all of this, confused, embarrassed, blindsided, trying to figure out what was next. So during you know, the initial time after that, I kind of went into a phase where I just zoned out, and honestly, I was kind of watching Blow Deck Med is a great show if anybody would like to watch it on Bravo, <laughs> Blow Deck, and then Chopped for a while, and then HGTV, all the beach stuff, because it was all escapism, um, Chip and Joanna, you know, on and on. Um, and that was, I mean, ask my husband, he's here, that's what was happening. Um, and so, unfortunately, though, that wasn't the only thing that wasn't fitting in my life. Um, my mom is 91 years old, and she lives about two, year, two hours away from here. Um, she's amazing. She's totally got all of her marbles, but she has had, over the past four years, a lot of serious medical issues. And last year, um, around May, so this is shortly after I was let go the first time, um, she started losing weight. She started being lethargic. She had no energy. Um, we couldn't figure out what was going on. Her caregiver that came a couple days a week to give her a shower said she had redness and swelling on her left leg and her hip. And many, many years ago, she had hip replacement surgery. Um, well, one other thing I forgot, a year and a half ago, she was one of those things was she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and so our first initial thought was, oh, geez, it's now gone to the bone, and it's presenting itself in this hip. So um, through all sorts of tests and misfires and things you don't even want to hear about with healthcare, if anybody's gone through trying to get a diagnosis, you know it can be hellish. And the fun is this is all two hours away at various locations. So I was driving back and forth, taking notes, conference calling when I had to or couldn't be there. Um, long story short, um, it was diagnosed as a, um, it was an infection of the hip joint that had telegraphed to the incision site that was 22 years prior. Um, ironically, the same year my husband and I got married, so it was two weeks after our wedding. And in addition to that, it had gone all around her femur. So. Um, she actually, they couldn't do it down in LaSalle, Peru area, um, so they said she had to come up to Weiss uh, Memorial, and that's where she had her surgery, and it was, I thought it would be a, I don't know, laparoscopic or something. They made it sound like it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but when I came in after recovery, she had 70 staples that went from her rear end all the way down to middle of the thigh, 91 years old. Both hips are replaced, right knee is replaced, she broke this femur, breast cancer, fell before, you know, no, 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 no. So now this. Um, and so anyway, we got her through that, then we got her down to the nursing home, six weeks of rehab, again, back to the same nursing home. And, you know, it worked out, we got her back upright, and, you know, because I was available, AKA unemployed, I was able to take her to all the appointments um, and be with her. And unfortunately, that wasn't the end of our medical woes for last year, um, because then June, so if you're tracking with me, April lost the job, May mom, uh, or May mom had this issue, early June, my sister-in-law um, went in for what we thought would be a routine medical um, surgery to remove something they thought was very, very benign. Turned out to be stage three lung cancer. Um, and so, you know, that's a complete shock for anybody to undertake, but it's horrible. But for our family, it was even more horrible because nine years prior, my husband already had lost a sister at age 45 of pancreatic cancer. Um, so she had got diagnosed in January and was gone by that May. And she left behind a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a five-year-old. So during that time, the sister that now got diagnosed with stage three lung cancer because she's not married and doesn't have children, she stepped in as a surrogate mother figure along with the rest of us to try to help keep you know, the brother-in-law and the kids rolling um, active lives. And luckily they were not too far away. 
So anyway, it's soul crushing because she's, you know, great person, heart of the family, favorite aunt, great sister-in-law, awesome sister, awesome daughter, you know, check, check, check. So it was almost too much to bear. Um, she had to go through radiation and chemo. And, um, you know, all of us kind of took turns. And again, I was available, unemployed. Um, so now I went to another. You know, I became very familiar with all the hospitals in Chicago, Park Ridge, Streeter, Peru, Ottawa, and I think that covered it. But anyway, I was up and down I-55 a lot. So, um, you know, and there were more, but I'll spare you. There was a lot more things that happened last summer, but um, I won't get into those. But bottom line is we felt cursed. We felt like every time the phone rang, something else would happen that was bad. Um, and then, just for fun, um, we have a, had a senior in high school, so then we were getting ready to send her off to college. So here you have your firstborn daughter. She and I are very close. Um, we didn't have a graduation party for her because we were so caught up in all this other stuff. Frankly, none of us were really in the mood. <laughs> Sounds terrible. Um, but, you know, I feel guilty about it to this day because she worked so hard and got into a very hard institution, direct admit program, um, and wasn't even celebrated because we were just buried deep in the you-know-what. Um, and it was so bad that, you know, just with me not having a job and worrying about money, that um, for college you have to register by May 1st. And I did not hit that button until 4.56 on April 30th to accept the housing because it, talk about anxiety, um, you know, I still didn't have a job. I had no idea if I would get another job. You start having fatalistic thinking. Was it something I did? Why, won't, why did this happen? Um, I've done everything right. I did good work, on and on. So um, August 23rd was looming because that was her move-in date to the dorm. And, you know, anybody that's had kids that you take to college, um, you know, it's tough. And it's really tough when it's your own and your firstborn. So a um, lot of mixed emotions. We were very proud of her. We were very excited for the college experience she was about to have and this new adventure, but on the other hand, um, it was just one more piece of layer of anxiety and stress on top of everything. She was also concerned about my mother, her aunt, and, um, you know, on and on. So we got down to St. Louis, dropped her off, and, you know, it was as hard as you would imagine. And, you know, I think I cried all the way from St. Louis to Springfield, <laughs> so... If you uh, saw me, you would know. Um, so, but again, it's kind of like the other stories during these times where it's tough. You, you do learn, I think, the most when it's the worst times. You don't learn as much when it's fun. Fun is fun. Um, and so what I learned is there were blessings in all of this. Um, I was able to be with my mom for all these appointments. We had lots of conversations. I learned all sorts of crazy stuff about family history on both sides. It's actually quite amazing, and I'm going to do something with that um, in my hometown. Um, I reconnected with several friends from high school and junior high because I was down there so much, and as luck would happen, they were both unemployed. Um, not by their choice. So the three of us kind of got together, like the three amigas at the country cupboard, and um, it's this little place that should be on one of those shows, and with the guys with caterpillar hats, flannel sh you know, shirts, and great food, and they don't kick you out. We were there for three hours every time we went, laughing and just thinking how obs obscene this all was and insane, because I should be at work and so should they, but we weren't. Um, but during that time, too, eventually driving back and forth on the roads and to wherever, um, you start reflecting and trying to figure out what your direction is, what your purpose is in life, um, what's your passion. And, you know, I think a lot of times we tend to go through life where you just you go through the motions. It's a job. It's insurance. It's this. And that's where I go. And you just drive like lemmings. I used to take the train, and you see people getting off the train, and they don't even look at anybody. They just walk, walk, walk. Um, and so for 35 years, I did what I did, but it was never my passion. It was just I fell into it because somebody said it, you know, out of college. Um, my major was counseling and social work, ironically. Um, they didn't call it that down there at Eastern, but I had a psych minor, um, but I didn't go for my MSW. Um, 
But the job was solid. It gave me insurance for the family because my husband's self-employed. It was a good life and good living, and I met a lot of great people. And I did enjoy it for a time, but the business has changed, and I didn't like it anymore. So I finally got to the point where it's kind of like, what do I want to do? I was tired of going on job interviews for jobs I really didn't want to, that I was overqualified for, that would pay less, and la, la, la. And I finally just thought, I'm probably not supposed to be laying around watching reality TV shows for the rest of my summer. (laughs) So after, I think it was after we got my daughter off, then I finally, I think I was to the point where I was, um, I just said kind of like, God, universe, my dad, like somebody tell me what the hell I'm supposed to do, because this is nonsense, and I'm hating my life right now. And, you know, I'm ready to take it, like hit me with it, and, you know, kind of boy did they, and ask any of my friends. I'm a little hyper these days. I have a lot of energy. Um, I don't sleep as much, but it's exciting because I have a lot going on, and the creative juices are just flowing now with stuff I can do at my mom's hometown, some consulting things I can do. Um, And one of the things I've always loved is travel. So a few weeks ago, I started part-time as a travel um, consultant at a local travel agency. So if you'd like your trips, call me later. Um, (laughs) I know all sorts of stuff. Um, I've always loved it. I always was the one who organized for friends and family and our family. And, you know, I think I've been to 43 states and Australia and you know so it's always been a goal I love that and you know it's so much more fun doing that than monthly reports and you know general ledgers let me tell you Um, so finally you know I listened to my gut listened to my heart and um, that's the path I'm taking right now Um, you know both of you know I kind of I think over time I was so beaten down that um, you know this made me kind of find my voice and um, i kind of become a warrior in a weird way um, for people that are going through the same thing. Because in my industry before, I would you, you can flip jobs a lot. It's buying and selling a property. So either have a job or you don't have a job. And so like three or four times, I was at the Career Center over in Barrington. And you know I, I feel like I've done my resume a bunch of time, LinkedIn, on and on. And I know, I know the drill. And that's valuable to people. And I also know what it's like to navigate health care and nonsense that goes on with elderly people. And um, you got to watch them like a hawk. And even when I'm there, things still went wrong. So at any event, I knew I had a, a skill set, and you know that's huge because last year I didn't feel that at all. I felt like no light at all, nothing, everything was awful, you know, dark, dark hole. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what everything's going to happen, but I found my voice. It's like total clarity now. I'm just formulating plans. Um, you know, now we're at 2019. My mom's recuperated. She's back at home. My sister-in-law is back at work. They both had clear PET scans and CT scans just earlier this year, so thank God for that. Um, and we know all that's relative. It can change, but you know we'll take the good news while we have it. Um, my daughter's initial challenges in freshman year, first semester, she's now thriving in her second semester. And, you know, like I said, I'm working at a travel agency. I'm going to be doing some real estate consulting. And both jobs, I can work remotely if I have to. So if I need to be at my mom's, I can do that. So I'm still making money. We'll figure out the insurance thing. And um, I'm much happier. So in end, you know, thank God 2018 is over. I know it was crappy for a lot of people. Um, I'm excited for 2019. I was born on October 19th, and 19 is my lucky number. So finally, you know, it's all fitting perfectly right now. So thank you. All right. Coming to our final story for the evening, we're going to invite Felicia up, and she's going to talk about my life's challenges. So if you would, please welcome her to the stage. I got this. I've had practice already.
Good evening, everyone. My story is about my challenges. In the beginning, there was Carol, and I was Rob. Then came little old me. Just like quite a few people with the world today, I was born out of lust instead of love. I'm not sure if my mother's pregnancy was wanted or not. Only a few people knew that my mother was pregnant with me, and it was my grandmother, my aunt, and a few of her friends. When my siblings found out that she was pregnant, <laughs> my older sister, she found out by snooping in my mother's drawers, and she saw the bottom drawer was filled with all these baby clothes. She decided to run away. She didn't get very far, she just went to my grandmother's house because that's the only place she was gonna run to. <laughs> I don't really think that I was wanted during that pregnancy. And the reason why I say that is because, like my, back in those days, in my father's gigolo days, he had a lot of women, he had a lot of children. And I don't think he wanted any more. So when he found out that my mother was pregnant with me, he just caused her extreme grief so much grief was to the point where she drank a fifth of vodka a day, trying to flush me out. It didn't work. But as a constant reminder of that, I have a birthmark about the size of an infant's foot on my side. I call it my vodka patch. Now due to this carelessness of her taking care of her body and my life, I was born with jaundice. I was completely young. At that time, at the maternity ward, you didn't have a private room. You shared the room with quite a few other new moms. She heard the doctors speaking amongst themselves, advising that we need to talk to this mom because she needs to have a blood transfusion for her daughter or for her child. She hoped and prayed that it wasn't hers. Unfortunately, it was. So they approached her and told her that it was life or death that I have this blood transfusion. So she decided without any hesitation to sign those papers. So I'm able to stand here right now and talk to you. But that was just the beginning of my troubles. Growing up with my siblings, I was always small in stature. I'm still small if you didn't notice. <laughs> but I was short, still short, and he did a lot of harassing and picking up on me. I was the youngest of five kids. My, sister, my aunt's kids, they were the same age as my older siblings, so they always had someone to play with, someone to talk to. Me, I was always alone, it was by myself, until my nephew Robert came along. So when he came along, I was happy because I had someone to talk to, someone to play with. And then he, I became to him what I always wanted, a companion, a savior, someone to keep me company. So if anybody messed with him, they always messed with me. And they didn't want to do that because even though I was small, and still am, I was his protector. Some people want to consider me the M word. I'm not that, I'm just short. I remember once my older brother was picking on Robert and I ran to his aid to try to protect him. My brother turned on me. So he picked me up by my ankle and dangled me as if he was trying to shake the change out my pocket. My mother heard the commotion and she came in and right before she came, he dropped me on my neck. Thank God there was nothing broken because I'm still here. All through high school and elementary school, I've always been in the head of the class. Not because I was all bright and smart. I am, but not that bright and smart. It was always because I'm the shortest. And people looked at me and saying, because I was so short, they wanted to pick on me and try to bully me, but fighting back with my older siblings, that kind of strengthened me. Fighting back for my nephew, that kind of gave, that gave me the courage 
and the ability to want to stand up to people who took, tried to take advantage of me. All through, when I was in eighth grade, I was named the most athletic person, athletic female, because I wanted to succeed, I wanted to excel in sports. Not knowing what my gym teacher was doing, he called upon a recruiter to see, I'm thinking, and it's gonna be me and some other mother of my classmates. No, he brought them in to only see me. I was recruited to play basketball for Washington High School as a point guard. Now, of course, you have to take a physical. So, of course, my mother was kind of leery of this because I'm short. <laughs> it was fine until the doctor told her that I have scoliosis. I have a 42-degree curvature in my spine. She, got, she was afraid. She didn't want me to play, but we eventually agreed upon, I'll just play home games so I won't be too far away if something happens. I had a te English teacher who also had scoliosis and she felt like that was a wrong decision for my mother, so it wasn't her decision. In order, only in order for her to prevent me from doing what I wanted to do was to fail me. Of course, she succeeded, but I paid her back the next semester. Anyway. <laughs> That was just the beginning. In the middle of, in the middle of my freshman year, I started working at my father's store. And one of my, I was working there with one of my family members. And his family members started noticing my developing womanly body shape and became a little bit too close for comfort. There was one particular night, because I always stayed, we always closed, and this person always took me, took me home. There was one particular night they were going through a personal loss, and I stayed there and I tried to comfort them by talking. So in order to relax themselves, they started to smoke marijuana. And they offered it to me, and I kept refusing. And they kept offering it to me until I, until I took it. That was the beginning of the molestation. Now, during this molestation, I always feared of saying anything to my mom because she loved this person as if that person was part of her family as well. And I feared that if I said anything, it would, she would blame me. It would always fall back on me because I allowed it or because I just don't know why, but that's how I felt. And shortly thereafter, the suicidal thoughts came. I wanted to act up on them, but I didn't. At the age of 14, I became pregnant with my older son. My mother found out, I thought, that was the end of me. The suicidal thoughts came stronger and more stronger. But instead of her turning on me, my mother stood right by my side. So she called this person and she gave him until 10 o'clock that night to turn themselves in and get their affairs together. Still so, uh, At 10 o'clock, they turned themselves in, they served time, and they went through counseling and had probation. I went through counseling too because this was very traumatic for me at the age of 14. I had no childhood. I went from being a child to an adult. Over the years, I used that knowledge to help strengthen me. I turned to God and asked him for direction. He has succeeded, but I know in my life that I have a lot of crossroads in order to get where I do belong. He has led me into the path of the most wonderful person I've ever met, my soulmate, my wife, He's guided me in the right direction as trying to raise my children the right way. I have no children that's on drugs. I have no children that's in gangs. All of them are healthy. Considering my life, 
that's a big win, a big plus for me. A wise woman once told me that God is not going to ever put anything on your shoulders that you cannot carry. And I live that fact every day. I think about everything that I've gone through in my life, and I thank God every day. And I always say, I'm still marching ahead with my head held high, and nothing or no one can stop me. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna dismiss our storytellers. You guys go out to the narthex, you go now, because otherwise you can get stuck in here. Can you give them one more round of applause as they're leaving? As I said earlier, it takes a lot of courage to tell stories uh, like that. And this is, uh, one of our heavier storytelling nights. Uh, we try to have a few, you know, we, we do these four times a year, and when they come up, I do try to have a few in there that are gonna bring out evenings like this where we can really talk deep. The next one we have is a little lighter. Uh, it's May 8th, uh, and the theme for that night is my first day, stories of walking in for the first time. So if that's a theme that resonates with you and you would like to tell a story, Please feel free uh, to write me and let me know, uh, and we would love to, to have you get up here and, uh, and talk about it. So um, I really would uh, hope that you would take the time to go and talk uh, to all of our storytellers this evening. We do have some time, uh, and I really appreciate that you all would come out and hear it tonight. So thank you all so much, and have a great evening. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.